Uh, normally we'd read the passage and then afterwards preach from it. But it's a long passage and so I want to sort of do it in parts this morning. Read a bit, explain a bit, read a bit, uh, explain a bit. Let me say a couple of things as we begin though. Um, this week I took our oldest two children to see a performance of Romeo and Juliet, a very good performance of Romeo and Juliet, a very good Juliet, uh, who's a member of our congregation. Um, when, when, when I booked the tickets, I was quite kind of surprised to see, amused to see perhaps, uh, a little trigger warning. Um, now, I don't want to ruin Romeo and Juliet for you if you've not seen it, but you can imagine what they give you a trigger warning for. Um, it, it doesn't end that happily. Um, Partly, I kind of thought, if you're booking Romeo and Juliet, you probably know what's going to happen, so you may not need the trigger warning. But if you don't, it's kind of ruined the plot. Um, judges, from now onwards, it's just non-stop trigger warnings. Okay, non-stop trigger warnings. Uh, this is a very dark corner uh, of Scripture. I'm not going to say that every week. But from now onwards, we are really in the depths. It's important to remember, of course, that not everything that happens in the Bible is a good thing. People do bad things in the Bible. The Bible is a very realistic book. And certainly we're going into the darkness this morning. So two comments as we head into this, this dark, dark corner of the Bible. Two comments about darkness. First of all, it is in the darkness that, that, that the best gems are found, isn't it? The darkest minds, the brightest diamonds. And so even in the horror, the brutality of the book of Judges, there will be grace for us. Grace for us, perhaps particularly if our own lives at the moment feel dark. <clears throat> but secondly, and in a sort of slightly different direction, part of the darkness, part of the point, I think, of the darkness of Judges and other corners of the Bible like it, is to show us just how bad it is when you walk away from the light. God is light. And when you walk from him, it is utterly horrific. And so every now and again, we need the reminder, we need to see how awful it is. I've just sometimes wondered if this is what horror films, why God has allowed horror films. I don't know, I'm not a prophet. But, and I hate horror, I don't watch horror films. I'm partly a wimp, but I just don't like them. But the, the, just the, the horrendous stuff that happens makes you realise just, just what terror is out there if you don't have God as your refuge. So with that in mind, let, let's dive in to Judges 9. Uh, we, we're just at the end of the story of Gideon. If you're with us over the last couple of weeks, we've traced the story of Gideon, uh, who's rescued Israel from the Midianites. And we're going to pick it up, actually, his story at the end of chapter 8 and verse 29. Jeroboam, who is Gideon. So chapter 8, verse 29. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abirazites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berit their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. The first, we're going to split the story basically into two halves. That's not the whole first half, <laughs> first a little bit. The first half of the story, though, is all about the crowning of Abimelech, the crowning of Abimelech. And it's going to show us the foolishness of sin, the foolishness of sin. Uh, in this little section, we see Gideon not ending well. He, he's conquered the Midianites, but he's gone and taken 70, oh, he's taken loads of wives and had 70 sons and a concubine. 
a kind of pretend wife. And with this concubine, he's had a, a boy called Abimelech. Now, Abimelech means my father is king. Uh, why does that matter? Well, it matters because Gideon has made a great show about not being king. The Lord uh, is king. Uh, earlier on uh, in the, um, uh, the chapter, verse 23, Gideon has said to, to the people, when they come and say, Gideon, why don't you become king? Not just also a rescuer, but a king. Verse 23, he says to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. There's a good, pious instinct. I'm not going to be a ruler, nor my son. We're not going to found a dynasty. The Lord is going to rule over you. And we say, godly Gideon, wise Gideon. Oh, I see your concubine's pregnant. What's, what's, what, what's your son's name? Oh, I've called my son, my father is king. <laughs> see the hypocrisy? It's already beginning to turn downhill. And in fact, as soon as he dies, verse 33, the nation turn away. They turn back to Baal, who's a false god, and make this particular god, Baal Berit. Berit means covenant. It's the name the Bible gives to the relationship between God and his people. And it seems like the Israelites have made this kind of, it's a bit sort of mash-up God, like Mr. Potato Head God, brought bits of the Bible knowledge together and bits of kind of Canaanite culture, stuck it together, and they go after this false God. Uh, their problem, verse 34, is they don't remember God. It's not they've forgotten his name. It's just they don't care about him anymore. They know the theology. They know the stories. They just don't care. So already the people have abandoned God. And as we begin chapter 9, we meet this son, Abimelech, my father is king. He's going to turn from God too. <clears throat> so chapter 9, verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rules over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Barbarit, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless followers who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Here's Abimelech, the son of the concubine, one of Gideon's children. And he gets to, to Shechem. Shechem is actually a, a very holy place in the Holy Land. It's the first place that Abraham built an altar in when Abraham was wandering around the land that would one day be his descendants. Shechem was where he built his first altar. It's also where the Israelites built a pillar saying, you know, the Lord is our God in the book of Joshua. It's a kind of holy site, a site that shows they're dedicated to God. And there, well, their rebellion begins. You see what Abimelech says to the leaders of the town? who interestingly are called Baals, that they're called the leaders, but the Hebrew word is Baals. They're all sort of little gods. He says to them, look, never mind all those sons of Gideon. Let's get rid of them and make me king. And they're up for it. They take money from the temple of this false god, 70 pieces of silver, we'll see why in a minute, and give it to Abimelech. And what does he do? He hires thugs. And verse five, here's a crucial verse for our story. He killed his brothers all 70 of them on one stone. All 70 slaughtered 
on one stone. 70 pieces of silver by the deaths of the 70 sons. Or nearly. One escapes. Jotham escapes. Jotham's name means the Lord is perfect. So we've got my father is king versus the Lord is perfect. And Jotham is going to be an absolute pain in the neck for, for, for um, Abimelech. So look what happens at the coronation. Children, we get the first ever parable in the Bible, the first ever fable, if you like. So verse 7, when it was told to Jotham, okay, the son who escaped, that they were going to make uh, Abimelech king, he went and he stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And then he tells the story. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honoured and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the other trees? So the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, goes on Jotham, if you, talking to the Shechemites, if you leaders acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you've dealt well with Jeroboam, that's Gideon, and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you, risked his life, delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you've risen up against my father's house this day, and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he's your relative. If then you've acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Here is Jotham at the, at the coronation. Jotham, the Lord is perfect. And he goes up on the mountain. Okay, imagine, we've, we've all seen a coronation pretty recently. Imagine someone getting up in the galleries of uh, Westminster Abbey, just as the, 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 the crowning is beginning to uh, happen. And he's shouting, you know, wouldn't anoint him, he's an idiot. Okay, the Archbishop of Canterbury's lowering the, the crown onto the king's head. Wouldn't do that if I were you. Okay, he's causing total carnage at this coronation. And he tells this story. Children, did you see the story? It's about the, the trees of the forest wanting to choose a king. They say to the olive tree, first of all, why don't you bring, um, come and be king? And the olive tree says, no, I, I bring abundance. I produce olive oil, which blesses, brings abundance, wealth to, to men. I've already got a role. I'm bringing wealth to men. So in verse 10, they go to the fig tree. Will you come and be king? And the fig tree says, no, no, my sweet fruit already blesses men. Why would I hold sway? Literally, all these trees say, why would I wave over the other trees? It's sort of taking the mickey out of the, the, the king. Why do I need to be up there kind of waving over? You know those things they have outside garages, the kind of wavy arms? Why do I need to kind of showboat over the other trees? I'm blessing people already. And so they go to the vine. So you know what vines make? Wine. And the vine tree says, no, no, I'm making wine that, that blesses God and men, making men happy, 
Why would I give up just to wave over the other trees? Oil, abundance, riches, wealth, figs, sweetness, fruit, vine, wine. And so eventually, verse 4, they go to the bramble, the thorn bush, and say, you come and be king. And he says, okay, if you're serious, come and shelter under me. Do you see that in verse 15? If you're serious, come and take refuge, shelter in my shade. Now, children, have you ever tried to shelter under a bramble bush? What would it feel like if you went to shelter under a bramble bush? It'd be prickly, wouldn't it? It would hurt. And also, they're only about this high off the ground. They're tiny, aren't they? They're just low little bushes. They're not great big oak trees or something. You'd have to get down in the dirt. It would provide rubbish shelter, and it would poke and prickle and stick you. It's going to hurt you. The bramble does not bring blessings. In fact, in the Bible, the thorns, the thorn bush, the bramble bush, is a sign of God's curse on the planet. Back in Genesis 3, when the world was perfect and Adam and Eve rebelled, one of the curses on the ground was that it would now produce thorns and thistles. And now God's people are saying, come thistle bush, thorn bush, and be over us. It's not going to end well for you, Jotham is saying to the leaders of Shechem. And if it turns out that you have been baddies, and he knows very well they have been, they've just slaughtered his brothers, then, then Jotham issues a double curse. Back to Romeo and Juliet, a plague on both your houses. Do you see in verse uh, uh, 20? Let fire come out from Abimelech, the king, and destroy the leaders of Shechem, who've conspired with him and turned to other gods. And let the leaders of Shechem, fire come out from them and destroy Jotham. Goes both ways. That's the curse. Let's pause there. Let's pause there. It's a strange story, isn't it? What does the crown of Abimelech show? The crown of Abimelech. It shows the foolishness of evil, of turning from God. So what we need to hear this morning, the utter foolishness of turning towards evil and away from God. I've already said that uh, in the book of Judges, nobody is meant to be taking the throne, grabbing it. Gideon at least understood that by not becoming king and saying his, his son wouldn't become king because the Lord was king. But the Israelites don't want that. They want this bramble man to be king instead of God. And that's the crucial bit. We want Abimelech, the thorny man, to be king instead of God. What are they doing? They're turning away from God, the source of life and blessing, who'd promised to graciously give them this, this land flow with milk and honey, and instead turned to the bramble man. And, and the reason for the story, the reason the story is told in such a strange way with all these trees, is I think to illustrate the total madness of it. Who would choose to shelter under a bramble it's mad it's self-destructive and that is what sin is like turning from god is self-destruction uh, behind it all behind it all is another king there are two kings in the world there's the lord jesus but he makes it clear we can either follow him or his great enemy satan and satan will always pretend he's going to be working for your good he'll pretend he's giving to you Pretend his way of life, the way of turning from God, is a better way. But ultimately, he can't bless you. He can only destroy. That is his nature. All he can do is destroy you. He isn't after your good. Let's try to think about this a little bit more deeply. E evil. Okay, the evil that our hearts so easily turn to. 
we think it's a blessing, don't we? Think of Eve with the fruit. Why does she take the fruit? She thinks it's going to make life better. She shouldn't think, okay, this is going to be a disaster and plunge the world into misery. She thinks in her madness for a moment, this is going to make life better. And every time we sin, that's what we're thinking. Every time we flick on the internet and start looking at stuff we shouldn't look at, we think this is going to bring me real joy or pleasure. Every time we let rip with our temper, well, we know we should control it. We think it's going to make me feel better to vent. We always think sin is going to lead to blessing, but it never does. It can't. Uh, in part, that's because, and this is sort of deep stuff in many ways, but it's because sin is, is not a thing. God, God, is, God is real and he made a very good world. And when Satan comes along, he, he can't create. Satan can't make things. God can just speak and things exist. But Satan can't do that. All he can do is take the stuff that God's already made and use it and abuse it. Use it to trap you, distort it. Uh, that's all evil can ever do. That's all sin can ever do. It's not a thing. God didn't make evil. Uh, children, I bought a picture of me. I tried to print off a kind of a famous painting, but it didn't work very well. So I bought this picture. I don't know how many you'll be able to see it. This is the best I could do, okay? <laughs> so this is a thing of beauty. I tried the Mona Lisa. I tried Van Gogh Sunflower. didn't work very well. It is a thing of beauty, as I'm sure you'll agree. It's a, a picture. Okay, beautiful. Okay, it is a good thing. What does evil do? Well, it can't create something else to charm your way. But what it can do is this. It, it, it takes beauty and punches a hole in it. Okay, so there's a hole. Oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> evil is like the hole. It's, it's not a thing. Okay, if I said, come and, come, and, come and pick up the hole, you couldn't do it, could you? Well, no, the hole's not a thing. It, that's what evil is. It's a ruining of the good. A taking away of the good, a destroying of the good. It's not creative. It can't bless you. It can only hurt you. And again, that is how Satan works. That is how sin works. He gives, seemingly, but only in a way that actually is destroying, because that is his nature. Let me give you a couple of examples. About alcohol. Alcohol, as we saw in this passage, wine is a good gift of God. Psalm 104, the Lord gave wine to... Glad in the heart. Okay? It is a perfectly good thing to have a glass of wine. Oh, that's lovely. What does Satan do? Takes a good gift, wine, glass of wine, and gives you another one, another one, and another one, and, an and then suddenly you're in trouble. Wine good, drunkenness bad. Good thing distorted. Or freedom. God gave us freedom in many ways. We're not robots, are we? Puppets on a string. He, he gave Adam and Eve dominion, to use the Bible's word. They can make choices and do things. Good. Satan says, yeah, freedom, good. And the gospel, in fact, is the main religion, I think, of Leeds in the 21st century. Most of the West, sometimes we've summarized it as be yourself, free yourself and express yourself. Don't listen to anyone else. Follow your heart. It takes a good thing, freedom, being able to make decisions. And pushes it and pushes and pushes it until we rebel against God. And then what do we find? We find whole generations full of anxiety. I don't know who I am anymore because I'm not listening to God tell me who I am. I'm not listening to my parents. I'm, I'm lost. Satan pretends to give but actually destroys. All sin is like that, ultimately. What area of your life are you listening to the lie of Satan 
that turning from God, walking away from him, is the way to blessing. The crowning of Abimelech shows us the utter foolishness of sin. On the story goes, the first half is the crowning, the second half is the crushing of Abimelech. Let's pick up the story in verse 22. Uh, Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years, not very long. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. And the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them. And on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops. And they robbed all who passed by them along the way. And it was told to Abimelech. God sends an evil spirit, not a moral evil spirit. This confuses us and throws us a little bit. It more means he sent a spirit so that bad things would come back on Abimelech. Okay, so that the being itself, whatever this spirit is, isn't morally evil. Or rather, bad things are going to happen to Abimelech. Why? Because of what he's done. And there's an irony, isn't it? What happens? That the leaders of Shechem, well, they rebel against the one they rebelled with. They rebel against Abimelech and set ambushes up in the mountains. A robber band kicks off and it gets worse. In verse 26, we meet this guy, Gaal. And I'm not going to read all of this because, again, the passage is long. But this guy, Gaal, whose name is Loathsome, he turns up with his cronies and they have this kind of drunken feast in verses 26 through 29. And he says to the leaders of Shechem, never mind God. So, um, not never mind God, never mind Abimelech. <laughs> Definitely never mind God. Never mind Abimelech, I'm a closer relative. Why don't you throw off Abimelech and follow me? One commentator says, Gaal is like a biker gang leader. He's a total thug. And the leaders of Shechem go with it. Yeah, why not? And so they rebel. But there's a governor. In verse 30, you meet this guy, Zebel, the ruler of the city, and he hears the words of Gaal. But he stayed loyal to Abimelech, the bramble king. And so he sends a message to, to Abimelech and says, look, Shechem's going to rebel against you. So set an ambush for, for them. And so Abimelech comes and he sets an ambush. And in verses 34 through 40, there's, there's a, a battle. Uh, Abimelech, Gaal's been drinking all night with his cronies, his bike of lands, they've got the chains on their fists, they're all drunk. They wake up in the morning. Zabul had, had sent a message to Abimelech and Abimelech is creeping down the hills with his troops. And Gaal, he looks out and he, and he says... Um, uh, verse 36, look, there's, there's people coming down from the mountains. And Zebul says to him, no, 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 you mistake. Uh, it's just mountains uh, with shadows and stuff. And God, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and he waits a little bit, looks back and goes, no, no, no they, are, they are people. And by this time, Abimelech's close. Verse 38, Zebul says to him, ha, who's a big mouth now? Go and fight him. And so Gaal goes out and he loses. Abimelech wins. But Abimelech, his true colours shine through. At verse 42, we pick up the story. And Abimelech takes his people. And in, in, in verses 42 through 49, it's pretty horrific. He, he, he rounds up all the, he sort of chases all the, the citizens of Shechem, those in the field. And he herds them into the city and he slaughters them. And a bunch of them hole up in a tower. And he says, look, look, follow me. Let's pick it up at verse 48. Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. See what's happening, children? 
chops down some branches, puts it on his shoulder, and he took it up. Uh, so did the, the, the men who were with him. What you've done, see, what you've seen me do, hurry and do as I've done. So every one of them cut down his bundle, and following Abimelech, they put it against the stronghold, against the tower, and they set the stronghold on fire. So all the people of the Tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. But sets his tower on fire, burns them alive. It's utterly horrific. But he's not, he's not had enough. He's not had enough. On he goes to this next town, Thebes. Now this is vital. This bit is really is vital. Pick it up, verse 50. Abimelech went to this other town, Thebes, and had camped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower. Uh-oh, we know what happens when they go and hide in a strong tower. There was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. So there he is. Wood, matches, we'll do the whole burning thing again. Verse 53. And a certain woman, who knows what her name is, threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. It takes a while to die, so he gets his armor bearer to, to kill him off. But there we go. Woman throws the stone, his head is crushed. He loses, and Israel disappear home. What on earth is that telling us? Well, it's telling us, I think, if the crowning shows the foolishness of evil, making a bramble man king, turning to, to Satan. This is showing us the utter futility of it, the pointlessness of it. It cannot win. The crucial verse is at the beginning and the end of the passage. Verse 23. God sent the spirit so that, verse 24, the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come back on Abimelech and their blood be laid on Abimelech and on the men of Shechem. And at the end of the passage, verse 56, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Evil cannot win. God will turn it back on itself. It is a road to destruction. It's like a parasite. Uh, children, it's, like, it's like a vampire. Vampires can only survive by sucking on blood of a something live, can't they? Or fleas or ticks. They have to suck and take life from others. And when there's no more host, no more blood to suck, it, it dies. Evil is like that. In fact, God won't let it win. He'll turn it back on himself. There's a poetic justice all the way through the story. How did it begin? Abimelech conspires with Shechem to kill the brothers. What happens later in the story? Shechem conspires with Gal to throw off Abimelech. Kind of matches. In the middle of the story, Gal, the biker gang, they, uh, and the, 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 uh, the Shechemites, they set an ambush for Abimelech. And as they wander around in their drunken stumor, what does Abimelech do? Sets an ambush for them. And they end up destroying each other. Crucially, Abimelech kills the 70 brothers on one stone. We keep getting told about this one stone. What happens at the end of the story? Abimelech is killed by one stone. There is a matching, fitting justice to the whole story. Although God isn't mentioned in much of the action, just the sort of bookends, he is at work behind the scenes. 
Do you see where rebellion against God leads? The story is telling us it, it leads nowhere to death, to destruction. It's futile. It's totally pointless. God is in control all the way along, even if it doesn't seem that way. Sometimes we, we say to ourselves, and, and perhaps you're not a Christian or perhaps you're a Christian who's wandering from the way a little bit. And you're saying, look, nothing seems to go wrong when I sin. Where are those lightning bolts from heaven you Christians keep talking about? This judgment of God. It's not happening, is it? And we fail to realize that actually it is the very fact we are going on sinning more and more and more. That is the punishment. That is the sign that God is turning his hand against us. That is what's so dangerous about sin. If you're in a, a pattern of sin that is going on and on and on and on and on, don't think, oh, I'm getting away with this, aren't I? Time and again in the Bible, God talks about handing us over to our sin. In other words, the ongoing sin is the punishment because it's wandering us further and further and further away from the light and the life of God and towards the darkness and the fire and destruction. Much of this, interestingly, we have no time ready for this this morning, but much of this is inherited. Abimelech has picked things up from Gideon, his father, and made it even worse. Gideon's patterns amplified by his son, very sadly in the Bible, that is often the case. Or in life, sorry, that is often the case. Father sows the seed and the children weep, reap the whirlwind. Don't presume on grace in that sense. Grace is always available, but, but it's not an excuse to go on sinning. Now, now, in many ways, this chapter, this chapter is the first time in Judges that God has acted fairly. He's given everyone exactly what they deserve, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a chapter that we probably don't like, but it's the one where God has acted fairly. I'm hearing a professor, he's out in the States, speaking about um, setting an, uh, an exam, uh, or an essay rather. He told his students, look, essay's due 10th of November. That's it, 10th of November, it's due. Totally fair, upfront, gave them loads of notice. Uh, 10th of November, you know, most of the class hand it in. Five students at the back of the, the, the hall, shuffle forward, I'm really sorry I haven't finished. Uh, he was a Christian professor and he said to the, the first one, okay, do you know what? I'm going to give you a couple of days grace. Second one. Do you know what? Okay, a couple of days grace. Third one, a couple of days. But then this time, the fourth and the fifth one, I'm like, okay, okay. Gets to the fourth one. He says, right, you failed. She says, student goes, that's not, that's not fair. You just, you just let the first three off. And the professor says, it is fair. It is totally fair. I told you the essay was due on the 10th. What's unfair about now failing you when you don't hand it in? And she said, but you, but, but you let the other three off. She says, if I decide to let them off, that's my right. It's not your right to be forgiven. And there's something like that with the grace of God, isn't it? He is wonderfully gracious, but we cannot demand grace as if it's our right. By definition, it's grace that is unfair. God going beyond what he ought to do. Many times our sin comes back on our own heads. Uh, he who digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit he has made. His violence comes down on his own head, the Psalms tell us. So it is dark, isn't it? <laughs> this corner. But there is some light as we wrap up. There is some light. And the light, bizarrely, comes from that stone. It's interesting, isn't it? We're not just told that someone threw a, a rock and it killed Abimelech. We're told very specifically a woman threw a stone and his head was crushed. It's the second time in Judges 
a woman has crushed the head of the baddie. Remember jail and the tent peg? Children, splat. It's horrible, isn't it? Why? Why all this head crushing? It's echoes of the promise back in Genesis 3. God said to the serpent, one day one of Eve's children will crush your head. And throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, various stories, we get heads being crushed. At the moment, it's by the women, not the son. But it's a little taste of what will come when the Lord Jesus comes. Ultimately, when Jesus comes, he does turn evil back on itself, or God turns evil back on itself. It looks like evil has won. Satan enters Judas. Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus is falsely accused. The wimpy Pilate unjustly crucifies him. It looks like evil has won. Darkness comes over the land. You can hear them all laughing, Satan cackling. But actually, actually, in that moment where it looks like evil has triumphed and the Son of God has been killed, the Son of God has triumphed. Do you know the story of Aslan? Narnia, the great lion. He's killed, the children are weeping. And Susan and, and Lucy are standing there. And suddenly Aslan is back. What does it all mean, asked Susan? It means, said Aslan, that though the witch, the one who killed Aslan at the table, Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read a different incantation. She'd have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's place, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. There is a deeper magic. That's what's going on at the cross. Deep magic. Christ defeated, but actually Christ conquering. As he takes the penalty for our sin and therefore sets free all his people. It means Satan's kingdom is empty. The, the, the jail is unlocked. Satan can no longer accuse you of anything if you've come to Christ as your king. Because no charge stands against you. You see the contrast. Abimelech killed his brothers so he could rule. The son of God comes into the world, Jesus, and sacrifices himself so his brothers, you and me, his brothers and sisters can live and rule in glory. Abimelech grabbed power to rule over people. Jesus gave up his power. The son of God gave up his power so that he could serve his people. Abimelech, Satan, seized the blessing of kingship so that others would be cursed under his thorny rule. Jesus took on the very crown of thorns that symbolized the curse, took the curse upon himself so that we might be blessed. This is what grace is. And it's showing you that, there, that Jesus' kingship is a good kingship. Yes, his, his salvation is good. His, the fact that he, that he pays the penalty so you are forgiven when you come to him is good. But so is his kingship. So are his rules for your life. They're not the way you get saved, but they are a good and the best way to live. He's come to save you for obedience, not from obedience. Now, don't mishear me. You're not saved by obedience, but you are saved for obedience. Satan is going to keep going at you if you're a Christian. Walk away from the light. Walk away from the light. Come to me, the thorny king. And you must not listen, not just because it is wrong, although it is, but because it is deeply foolish. It will destroy you. And deeply futile. It's going nowhere. It may be hard at times. Satan will say, indulge yourself. Take what's not yours. Remember, he hasn't got anything to give you that is his own. So he says, take what's not yours. 
Be greedy. Covet someone else's wife. Lust after someone else's husband. Or he'll say, don't give to others what God calls you to give. So he, he can give you stuff that's God's and misuse it. Or he can say, look, hoard everything that God has given you. God has given you to bless others, but, he, but he says, no, keep it to yourself. So don't give forgiveness. They don't deserve your forgiveness. Keep hold of your anger. She doesn't deserve your mercy, your forgiveness. Uh, don't give your time, your energy. You've got to protect it. Conserve yourself. Don't die. Don't lay down your life. Keep your life. Hold on to it. It's your house, your home, your time, your money. Hold on to it. And it's just the way of death, destruction, futility and foolishness. Jesus says, no, look, I have come, the king of life. I laid down my life and died. And that was the path to life. And that is now the way I call you to live. I've dealt with all that selfishness. It's a way of death. You've seen what happened when Father Adam and Mother Eve lived that way. Instead, come, well, come to me. Come under my blessed rule and flee the thorns of sin. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are foolish people. Uh, we confess so quick to go towards the thorns and thistles uh, of sin, to believe the lies. And we praise you, you're so full of grace that you came in the person of your son, your Lord God, you came, were crushed in order that we might live. We pray we'd see, therefore, in you, Lord Jesus, a good king and a true and better way to live. Empower us to walk away from the snares and the brambles, the thistles of sin, and flourish in the light. Pour your spirit on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.